Hey everyone, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we share Black feminist perspectives and close read pop culture and other social topics that affect Black folks. I'm Alyssa and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hey y'all, I'm Brendan and I also use she, her, hers pronouns. Today we'll be talking about the spread of industrial complexes, nonprofits, so-called activists, influencers, consultants, business people, the controversy around Black Lives Matter global network spending, and the whispers around Nicole Hannah-Jones and Kimberly Crenshaw being a little problematic. 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 (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into the episode, we would like to give a huge thank you to all of you, our listeners, our supporters, our lovers, our haters, whether you Mm. love to listen or you hate listen, it's still a listen and algorithms can't tell the difference. So as you all know, we don't advertise Mm -hmm. any brands. So we rely on folks like you to keep the proverbial lights on. If you would like to become a patron, you can support our work for as little as $3 per month. Head to patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters to check out the different tiers and join the community. You all help keep our podcast accessible in all of the different ways that we define accessibility. So now, of course, we know that some folks don't have the coin to spare and we understand. It's a whole pandemic. We really do. It's a pandemic. And life is literally so expensive even when there isn't a Mm -hmm. pandemic so we we're with you we stand with you we sit with you if you still want to support the podcast you can just share this episode on social media you can share it with your friends your family your frenemies and definitely be sure to tell people why you liked the episode yes and you know tell us why too Uh, give it a little bit of a personal touch especially if you're telling a friend of me just be like i thought you would learn something from this you know just a little (laughs) sprinkle um but let's get into the episode Alyssa. what is our word for today our word for today is the blank industrial complex really it's industrial complex which we've heard appended to different systems like the prison industrial complex the medical industrial complex the wedding industrial complex. And I think we once joked about the influencer industrial complex. So what does it even mean when we affix industrial complex to a system? Typically it's used to signal the commingling of private interests and public structures or institutions in a way that boosts profitability for both. An industry with an industrial complex operates at the expense of individuals and profit when they proliferate whatever problem it is they purport to solve. So President Dwight Eisenhower popularized the term in his 1961 Faroe speech. He said that the military industrial complex was a threat to democratic government. And in his view, there were three groups with an overlapping interest in war and conflict. So we have the American arms industry, the US military, and businesses providing goods and services to the military. And since the military employs a significant number of people, both directly and indirectly, people are invested in maintaining it, right? They're invested in seeing it grow. And so the issue that comes up when this is kind of at the crux of things is that the military's theoretical goal of peace is actually antithetical to the economy's goal of profit. 
Right. So to put it simply, the military-industrial complex, they'd rather start wars instead of actually putting themselves out of business by Mm -hmm. helping to produce peace, right? Mm -hmm. It's too profitable for them to maintain the problem. And when you have an industry that's highly profitable for people in multiple sectors, it then carries influence over society. Governments begin to make decisions that serve the industry rather than the people. So this leads to a conflict of interest. And the prison industrial complex is a great example of this. And if you want to hear us talk more about it, we read Mariam Kaba's book. We do this until we free us in the in season one. Mm-hmm. So the state claims that the U.S. justice or punishment system is to protect the public and help, quote, rehabilitate offenders. However, the prison industrial complex benefits from high inmate populations and employs thousands, maybe millions, who knows, and thousands, including mm-hmm. ex-military, which there's a connection between the military industrial complex and the prison industrial complex. Ooh. So there's no economic benefit to actually rehabilitate anyone. At the same time, the state is seeing profits rise, so they have less motivation to decriminalize certain offenses or make legislation that would be beneficial to communities most affected by incarceration or high incarceration rates. Right. And one of the things that we talked about today during our Patreon discussion section was actually whether there is a such thing as an academic industrial complex, which people have certainly written about. And, you know, I feel like people really just be casually adding on industrial complex of things as a joke um, to kind of talk about how that particular thing is all encompassing or the ways that certain industries manipulate our values to sell more things like the advertising, diet or wedding industrial complexes. And so in this way, industrial complex is becoming like intersectionality, which has its original and intended meaning. That is different from the way it's used every day. And what's also important to know is that if something doesn't affect the economy and ideology, right, it isn't an industrial complex, right? If it doesn't affect how we, you know, how money circulates, how power circulates, if it doesn't affect how we think about ourselves and each other, then I would not call it an industrial complex. I would just say it's just a part and parcel of capitalism and how capitalists capitalism functions exactly exactly but it's funny funny you should bring up intersectionality because we'll be talking about that later on but to go back to the discussion section i don't think we really came to a conclusion about whether Mm. or not academia is an industrial complex i think that perhaps in the sense yes because there is this increasing demand for certification so you have you know your degrees your certificates your diplomas And the economy is driving an increase in the creation of professional and master's programs, which, of course, serve the business interests of the university. And that's, you know, universities all over are doing this. They have a ton of professional master's programs that are effectively Mm -hmm. funding uh, the research programs. Right. And what's you know, what the major problem is there is that it's at the expense of the humanities and the social sciences. So. Yes, they're supporting the masters or sorry, the research programs, but also they those professional programs are paying 
the salaries of these like inflated uh, and increasing numbers of like administrators that have been hired. I think I saw a statistic that said that uh, in the last, I think since 1975 or something like that, the number of administrators in universities has increased by 200% while like tenured professors and research positions and things like that have decreased. And that's, wow. that's just my bad memory. So it could be even more, it could be a higher wow, percentage. Wow, not two times the people not answering emails or phone calls. <laughs> wow. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. At, le- at the very least. At the very least. Um, <laughs> two times the people not answering. <laughs> so, so those people are just ballooning, which, of course, which is like matching the increase in professional programs. Mm-hmm. That said, I don't think it's really at odds with the original purpose of the Western University, which was essentially to educate and train upper class future heads of households. But when you have these professionalized programs, they often cost a lot of money and you're either having people mm-hmm. who are going into a ton of debt in order to attain these certifications or people who can afford to pay for them, which are typically the upper class future heads of household. However, we may want to define that in the year of our Audrey Lord 2022. Right. And I would say, I mean, even our university is very expensive. We had a conversation about this the mm-hmm. other day. Um, and the woman I used to live with paid, uh, what? how much did she pay? She paid $93,000 a year to get an MFA in film. Oh, wow. Um, so if you know... Well, I say it's an industrial complex, no, but is it definitely something that is harmful and should be abolished? For sure. No one should have to pay that much money for school. I literally just saw a tweet that said university used to be free until Ronald Reagan saw that black and other people of color were going to university en masse. Well, like I said... So, well, just a, you just know, a public you know service me. announcement. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> PSA. Well, <laughs> if you know me, you know how I feel about Ronald Reagan. Sometimes <laughs> I refer to him as Satan or Satan. Sometimes I just refer to him by his earthly name. But that actually just really <laughs> makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Satan and Spray Tan are uh, the two... <laughs> Tan and spray tan, they are cut from the same cloth. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't have a solid answer about whether the academic industrial complex is a thing, but we would love to hear from you. So let us know on social media, hit us up on IG, Twitter, like what are y'all thoughts? Is academia an industrial complex too, or should we just find another name for it? Um, But On that note, we're going to move on to our next segment, which is what we are reading. What we're reading today is In the Shadow of the Shadow State by Ruth Wilson Gilmore. In the text, the revolution will not be funded beyond the nonprofit industrial complex. Tell us a little bit about Ruthie. So Ruth, (laughs) Ruthie. Who is um, who just had a birthday actually last week? Um, so happy belated birthday! 
Happy no surprise there. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is an Aries. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she is also a prison abolitionist and a prison scholar. She is the director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics and professor of geography in earth and environmental sciences at the City University of New York, or CUNY. Her first book, Golden Gulag, Prisons, Surplus, Crisis and Opposition in Globalizing California, which was published in 2007, has since received many accolades, is genre-defining. She did what needed to be done, honey. Mm -hmm. Um, She has been credited with, quote, more or less single-handedly inventing carceral geography, which is the study of the interrelationships across space, institutions, and political economy that shape and define modern incarceration. In 2020, she received the 2020 Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Association of Geographers, probably way too late considering her contributions, but we love y'all anyway. And the essay we're reading today is one that really just kind of, it spoke to my old organizer sensibilities, so (laughs) I'm excited to talk about it. I'm just, I have two things that I want to say before we proceed. And one is imagine getting a Lifetime Achievement Award 13 years after writing your first book. Hot damn. And secondly, I really do want to get to a point where I refer to someone who's low-key academic famous by their nickname in public. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to a talk <laughs> and heard some professor ask a question and refer to the person that they're referring to by their nickname or by a more, I don't know, informal name, you know? Like when you're famous, I'm gonna, you know, ask a question and be like, I don't know if you read Brendy's work, but. <laughs> you know. Not, not that I call you Brendy, but. <laughs> That's Brandy, fine. Brandy I mean, Tynes. You do, that would be fine. I don't know if you, you read Brendy Tynes' article. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I heard people be doing that to. Um... Henry Louis Gates all the time. They'll call him Skip. Skip, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I wanna I wanna get to that point. I know. What is gonna be your we got we're gonna pull the middle names out? Maybe that Maybe. One. I'm gonna start since I'm <laughs> planning on changing my academic name to Adina. Y'all can start calling me Dee Dee. Didi, have you read Didi's work? Oh, that's it. I'm actually gonna change the name of my phone now. Didi. Yeah, have y'all read Didi James? Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyhow, anyhow, uh, let's get into this essay because there were so many gems packed into what, like, eleven pages, right? Mm-hmm. Again, mastery, mastery. Maestra, maestro, no maestra. Maestra, la femme. Oh, maestress. <laughs> Y'all, we're delirious. We're both exhausted. Okay. Uh, so Gilmore begins with a quote from Ira D. A. Reed, who provided what she names as an incisive analysis of organized philanthropy in 1944. The first thing he noticed was that both reformist and radical black groups had become more dependent on foundation funding versus membership dues. Second, the assumptions that donors and the recipient groups had about each other and the possibility of social change 
actually reinforced the harmful structures the organizers worked to dismantle. This remains true to this day. To this day. Mm -hmm. Tell me we're not seeing to the same day. issues. <laughs> so in order for nonprofits to exist, the social problems they address also have to exist. And you have to believe that they will always exist. Charity and philanthropy are based upon the assumption that those that need help cannot help themselves. Though Gilmore doesn't say this directly in her article, these forms of giving replicate and reproduce white supremacist understandings of saviorhood. Right. And so these like black groups and their funders actually enter into these cycles of dependency and accommodation, as Gilmore names them. Um, that actually undermine any kind of liberation goal, right? Because these organizations are dependent upon foundations and the government for their funding, they must accommodate or weaken their goals for liberation. And so in this essay, Gilmore answers the questions, is there a nonprofit industrial complex? How did it come into being? And how is it powerful? And she also does the amazing task of providing some solutions to the issue, which I believe speaks to her political commitments. Gilmore goes on to explain the rise of the nonprofit industrial complex by first explaining its connections to the military industrial complex and the prison industrial complex, which we discussed in our last section. What is important to note about industrial complexes is their impact on our thinking or our ideologies. When being tough on communism in the military industrial complex was mirrored by being tough on crime in the prison industrial complex, their reach, quote, compromised all sorts of alternative futures. We moved from a world without wide-scale military and carceral interventions to having cops in our heads and hearts, as Paula X. Rojas says. As Gilmore writes, it's, quote, not that a few corporations call the shots. They don't. Rather, an entire realm of social policy and social investment is hostage to the development and perfections of means of mass punishment, from prison to post-release conditions implicating a wide range of people and places." End quote. These industrial complexes leave us with many devastating effects, including the normalized belief that safety can only be promised through violence and aggression. Which, if you've listened to our episode where we read um, that, that Didi, and I'm sorry, Didi mentioned earlier, <laughs> Um, about Miriam Kamba's book. <laughs> it's okay. I used to have a childhood nickname, Din Din. So, mm. oh, wow. And now the public knows this. Okay, so. <laughs> I never had a Didi nickname. And Din Din. People just call me Liss when I was, that's what my family, close friends call me. Lissy. Just Liss, not Lissy, no. Oh. <laughs> But um, as as you mentioned earlier, um, right, where we think where she talks about safety, she talks about community and how all of these things through the prison industrial complex, through policing, right, actually can only be faked, right? And so when we really think about what causes safety, we have to think about okay, how can we achieve that without violence and aggression. But you might be listening like, okay, but well what does nonprofits have to do with that? Like, there's not a nonprofit in the world asking people to, to walk down the street and beat somebody up. Like, we, we know that. Um, but the nonprofit industrial complex actually 
comes as a solution to the paradoxical situation that these complexes, the military industrial complex and the prison industrial complex created. And so basically, Gilmore goes into depth about how these complexes actually work to limit the imaginations of folks um, to the point where they cannot think outside of right these aggression agencies, which is what she names them, right? And they've changed the norms of how we handle the social abandonment that is actually necessary to fund the military and prisons. And so if we weren't putting all this money into military and prisons, right, we probably would not be experiencing the levels of homelessness and poverty that we do in this country. Right? That's not new. So what happens is over the course of the 20th century right, and into the 21st century is that we see the rise of people who act as what Gilmore calls them anti-state state actors, right? who are people who gain state power by denouncing state power. And we see this on all sides of the political spectrum, right? We have politicians who become famous or not famous, but actually rise to power by saying, we're going to shrink the state. We're actually against the growth of the state. We want to put people's power back in their hands, put people's money back in their hands, which we all know is not the case. What ends up happening, right, is that the military, the police, prisons, and other kind of aggression agencies, right, are seen as these legitimate forces that either need to be reformed with additional funding, which is what the Democrats tend to do, right, or strengthened with additional funding, which is what Republicans or right-wing groups tend to do, right, but actually never abolished. They are legitimate. They're the part of the state that will stay no matter what. So the part of the state that actually requires shrinking or actually gets the anti-state part of these anti-state state actors are the social goods, the social services, education, and other life-giving resources. And capitalism actually supports this um, by naming these social goods as unnecessary to the economy, right? So these things are kind of seen as kind, right? It's kind to have a place to live. It's kind to be able to buy food. That's not necessary to the economy, right? You don't need food to live. You don't need a place to live in order to go to work. Um, and so what nonprofits do is they swoop in to do the kind thing, right? Provide housing, provide, provide goods, provide education, while militaries and prisons destroy lives and communities. Right. And I think that's where we see this increase in charter schools. It's, it's the mm-hmm. semi-privatization of something that is was once considered a public good and a public service. Mm-hmm. So, of course, all of these things are in theory, right? Gilmore says, quote, the voluntary nonprofit sector can pick up any stray pieces because the extent to which extra economic values, such as kindness or generosity or decency, come into play is the extent to which abandonment produces its own socially strengthening rewards. That's their ideal, a frightening willingness to engage in human sacrifice while calling it something else, end quote. Whew. Well, right. While calling it something else was the part where I was like, oh, Mm. yeah, yeah. Calling it making America great again. Calling it. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) So calling it reform. (laughs) Jeez. So instead of attacking the harmful institutions and systems that create the conditions for abandonment, 
nonprofits take responsibility for the abandoned. They can and have stemmed social revolt and uprisings by providing a little something for the poor and under-resourced. Yes, and this phenomenon has actually been termed as the shadow state by Jennifer Walsh. And the shadow state is defined as the rise of the nonprofit sector that gives direct social services to people that the state used to. And so all of these, the shadow state, the nonprofit industrial complex is actually emerging as a response on both sides, right? So both the left and the right of the political spectrum to shrinking the social services and goods that were put in place after the Great Depression. And so they were like, that thing that got us out of the Depression, we're actually going to work against it now because, you know, the state should be smaller. (laughs) So these anti-state state actors actually advocate for nonprofits under the rhetoric of efficiency and accountability. So they say that nonprofits are efficient because their budgets are actually much smaller than for-profit corporations, unless you are a nonprofit like Teach for America. <laughs> right. And they <laughs> and they can tend, they can be held accountable, right? So um, governments, politicians, funders, donors can hold these nonprofits accountable through pooled contracts, right? Shrinking the budget if they are not actually doing desirable things. And so these factors make nonprofits vulnerable to their donors because if they don't like what you're doing, then they just take your money away. And what the nonprofit might have intentionally been set out to do, which is drastically improve the lived conditions of the populations that they serve, right, actually becomes impossible through these kind of funding rubrics and restrictions. So for those of you who have worked for nonprofits like myself, right, you know that talk they always give about how oh, we don't have the funding to do this or we are not allowed to do that because of this grant or this, that, and the third, or we can't pay you more because this grant is da 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 right? So this is actually what makes the liberation work impossible within nonprofits. And so Gilmore notes that the right, though, they actually fund their think tanks and nonprofits generously, which if in the article or in the essay she wrote, she said they like at one point it was a billion dollars of funding giving to these organizations, whereas left leaning organizations actually receive a fraction of that and even smaller fraction of that if you service black women and girls. Um, and so Gilmore says, quote, In other words, although we live in revolutionary times in which the entire landscape of social justice is or will shortly become like post-Katrina New Orleans because it has been subject to the same long-term abandonment of infrastructure and other public goods, funders require grassroots organizations to act like secure suburbanites who have one last corner of the yard to plant. So nonprofits, especially left-leaning nonprofits, expect people to make what do you say get a dollar out of a dime sometimes a dollar out of a penny (laughs) (laughs) um right we're expected to solve the social problems with much less money especially in comparison to the opposition yeah when when you said nonprofits or organizations that serve black women and girls it of course made me think of amy cox's book 
shapeshifters, mm-hmm. which though not the crux of it, you definitely see some of these tensions in the challenges that she has with funding because in you know in her field work, Dr. Cox actually works as the director of a nonprofit. So you kind of you kind of see these these difficulties, even though the book is not about nonprofits at at its core. Um, mm-hmm. You see some of these uh, interactions within it. But I think one of the things that um, Gilmore writes about that I found interesting, which of course applies to the the right and how they fund their think tanks and nonprofits, mm-hmm. as she calls it, doubly stolen money. So first mm-hmm. it's like the money that has been taken from, that are basically the profits from the exploitation of laborers through capitalism. And then of course this money is now going to nonprofits, which means they don't have to pay taxes on it. It's like, you know, it's this way that that the rich often shelter their money from tax from taxation. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was gonna say, and sometimes that money is not just from profits from you know capitalist labor. Sometimes it's like families who had those huge plantations. Mm-hmm. And then when everything got zipped up, they're like, oh. Let me make a foundation. <laughs> Let me make a foundation out of this um, so that Listen. my family's wealth is kept. The things that I have learned, like I did not know that Barclays Bank, they were originally slave traders and they saw the end of the slave trade coming and they were like, hmm, let's switch into banking. Lloyd's, Lloyd's Insurance um, in the UK, oh, yeah. they used to, mm. it actually started at, co- I learned this through my coffee research, actually, that they used to own a coffee shop. Um, and during this time period, people used to go to these coffee shops and it was a place to like drink, trade information. Um, coffee shops are where like the magazine newspaper structures got started because there was like a gossip magazine that went around called Tatler's or it was like a local news kind of thing. Um, that's how Tatler's got started. But at the coffee shop slash, it's like a bar, um, they used to bet on ships that would make it to port or not. And whoever won the bet would get the money. If the ship sank, so-and-so would get the money. And that's how the modern insurance industry got started. Of course, mm. during that time period, what, were it, what was in that ships? What, what, what would have been in the ships? Not necessarily right. people, but the the goods and the money that that were gained through again the theft of land and the theft of humans Ooh, once again slavery is back <laughs> every it time never every time it never left it never, never left all right so what should we do if you are here sitting there like, damn, there ain't nothing that we can do. This is so all-encompassing. Gilmore suggests that, quote, people put their minds and hands to solving the problems without abandoning themselves. In other words, take the money and run, as our ancestors <laughs> and predecessors have done while working towards radical goals with a sense of flexibility. But something that Gilmore says that we thought was very important to underscore here, we love an underscore, we love an underline, is that Mm -hmm. they never fooled themselves or other people into thinking that winning a loss was the same thing as winning a win. Nothing is liberation, but liberation. And liberation takes work, it takes study, 
It takes organizing, it takes sacrifice, and our oppressors will not teach us or fund us to free ourselves. Only we can do that. Only we can do that. <laughs> per. I, per, only we can do that. <laughs> and what I thought was really interesting and part of, um, part of what makes this work really, I think, make sense to me was that she provides examples and we're not going to go through all of them. You, We want to leave that um, to y'all to read for yourselves, get those gritty details. But she references several movements that are leftist and those that are conservative that actually organized effectively within this complicated vortex of complexes. And so a few things to note from those examples, right, are that these organized groups had short term, medium term, and I like that she said (laughs) medium term and long term goals. So it's one thing to organize a protest, right, as someone who has organized protests and led protests in the past, right? But that's a short term thing. Yes, a protest, it's a way to let out your emotions. Um, But then what next, right? Most times people just come show up sing a little bit, dance a little bit, and that's it, right? The problems are still the same. So it's important for for movements, especially those that are organized, to have goals and actually work towards those goals over a long period of time, right? Some of these groups actually organize to to address the social problem and not really were concerned about the longevity of their organization. And then they ended up actually dissolving when the desired outcome was achieved. And this is something that I think also we have to consider when we're thinking about activism, organizing, et cetera, right? It's like, is this about being known, being seen, being the activist TM to, for the end of your days? Or is it actually about addressing a social issue that needs to be solved? Because if so, that might require you to take a step back, right? Um, so Gilmore advises funders, right, who, quote, want to return their inherited wealth to the communities who produced it, end quote. I want to make sure I said exactly what she, what she said here, right, is to actually reflect on whether their funding practices perpetuate inequality, right? Are you only funding certain organizations that provide services for certain groups of people with conditions that actually perpetuate their suffering? Um, which is what happens with a lot of funders. They say, I need you to prove to me that you are alleviating the suffering. I'm going to use the example you brought from shapeshifters. Prove to me that you're actually improving the lives of these young black mothers, which means they have to hold them to a certain standard that the funders think is improvement, right? And not actually what these girls define as improvement of their lives. Uh, which perpetuates certain like power dynamics and structures. And so finally, something that I believe deeply that I think Gilmore actually put a lot more eloquently than I did, than I will, right, is that grassroots organizers need to resist the allure of chasing these, quote, unlikely allies. And I see, or what I've observed is that so much of funding is actually caught up in getting violent people to be in conversation with those that they violate in hopes that they'll change, right? So there's so many funding initiatives that are like, 
We want to create conversations between people who have opposing views. And how do you get people who wouldn't normally be involved to be involved in this work? And I blame Christianity, but (laughs) but I always do. Um, And I can talk longer about that, I think, in the next section if we have time. But, right, I agree with Gilmore in that we actually should be mobilizing likely allies, right, who might not be able to do all of the direct political work that grassroots organizations are doing because of the constraints of being a nonprofit, but they still can provide support, right? So maybe you're a nonprofit that has government funds for childcare, and there's a grassroots organization that's organizing to shut down a prison. What would it look like to form an alliance, right? Or a coalition with members of that nonprofit to get members of the grassroots organization childcare so that they can focus on X, Y, and Z, right? Just an idea. And so I think we really have to think expansively about how liberation will come, because I believe it will come. All right, but one thing for sure is that it definitely, absolutely will not be funded. Even that's something that, you know, we've been asked about is whether or not, you know, we'll be giving money Mm -hmm. to other organizations. Um, for y'all who don't know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but we're in the process of forming a nonprofit. <laughs> the irony, I know. Uh, but we'll get, in, we'll get into that in our next segment. Um, and I think in the last chapter of the book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, they actually talk about, Sista to Sista talks about how they've had their funding pulled or they've had difficulty with their funding because they were they were providing funds to other organizations that their funders didn't approve of. So mm-hmm. it turns into this whole, even if you want to do that, it turns into this whole situation where it's like, where are you getting your money from? Is it okay with them? And mm-hmm. all of that to say, nonprofits are not, they're not going to solve, they're not going to solve everything um, because they're still mm-hmm. as, Gilmore was showing us they are still under the under the eyes of the state right they're still operating within the boundaries Mm -hmm. of what the state expects and I think one of the things that I've I've often said in the past is that I'm not I'm not really big on non-profits I'm not I'm not someone who's like oh yes let's donate to this non-profit or this one is doing such great work because I think that they're, they're a result of the failure of the state to provide for the people and I didn't know about this term uh, the shadow the shadow state um, makes a lot of sense. But of course, as I've thought more about abolition and liberation, I don't think that the white supremacist capitalist state is at all invested in people beyond their capacity for labor and productivity. Even seemingly socialist things like parental leave that's considered a social good or a social benefit, we could look at as something that's supported by the state because it is labor that contributes to the reproduction of the workforce. So what I took away from this chapter is that there's no sense in in relying on the state or on nonprofits to provide, right? We really have to operate within within community. Which brings us to our final segment, which is what? 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 What in the world? What in the world? What's going on, y'all? What's going on? What's going on? 
I just, it's like every week, every time we come back, it's something new. Y'all have something. The, just, the world is, y'all always got something. Anyways, okay, so <laughs> in preparation for this episode, I did a quick search of industrial complex on Twitter. And actually, a lot of the tweets that came up, and I think it's obviously because of what's going on with BLM, but some of them were even older than that. A lot of the tweets were about the nonprofit industry and the nonprofit mm. industrial complex. And so at Crazy Cat Comrade on Twitter said, quote, the nonprofit industrial complex is the most effective way to crush any progressive movement, making activists dependent on funds from generous corporate donors. And that was in quotation marks ensures that all their actions will fundamentally serve capital. Remember all those massive protests against police brutality in the summer of 2020? Now we've got Jim Crow Joe and his VP Cop Mala in office and a few lucky professional activists got their mansion, end quote. So I, I think this speaks to Robert Allen's book, Black Awakening in Capitalist America, right? It was published in 1969, uh, 25 years after... Um, the book that uh, Gilmore cites. And it was analysis of how liberal white philanthropic organizations, including the Rockefeller, the Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, yep, the ones that fund research, social science research, and sometimes- My research. Yeah, Vernon's <laughs> research. <laughs> Yikes. Didn't, Yikes. Didn't fund my research, but <laughs> probably won't be funding Ooh. any more social science undergraduate uh, research. Um, <laughs> if y'all heard the T about SSRC uh, and the IDRF. Anyways, um, so those foundations were actually involved in suppressing radical and revolutionary black liberation movements back in the 60s. Which, I mean, makes sense. Because if you start having to give black people back their money, where... Where would you be? You wouldn't exist. Uh, hmm. And so the last chapter of the revolutionary, the revolution will not be funded. Um, there is actually a short essay about the grassroots organization Sister to Sister, which became a Brooklyn-based nonprofit. And the women that are in Sister to Sister, these are black and brown women who came together. Who noticed, you know, actually life is kind of fucked up. We got to do something about it. Um, and I recommend that if you are interested in learning more about the organization and also other abolitionist organizations, uh, Revisions of Abolition is an excellent documentary to watch um, to learn more about them. But in this short essay, they discussed the struggles they had depending on funding from foundations and how it actually led them away from the roots of their mission as a volunteer-based organization. They found themselves having to espouse values that actually were antithetical to why they came together in the first place, um, which is what a lot of nonprofit funding does. And so we've talked about which is not anything new. A lot of grassroots organizations that become nonprofits will kind of sing the same song. <laughs> and we've talked about um, on the podcast, right, the difference between activism and organizing. But here's a quick little refresher because we're about to get into, we're about to get into it, but this is BLM stuff. <laughs> um, for those of you who, this might be your first time listening, right? 
activism is something that happens kind of sporadically, right? I can become an I can be activated or become an activist on something after learning that something wrong has happened. The difference between activism and organizing is organizing is a sustained community effort to bring about change, right, for a particular community. In order to be an organizer, you have to know the community, you have to know what the community needs, and you have to know how to how to give them what they need, right, in ways that actually speak to them. So I could be an activist against, I don't want to trivialize it too much, but I want to prove a point. Like I can be an activist against pink nail polish, right? I could learn one day that pink nail polish is something that is horrible and no one should be wearing it because X, Y, Z. I can get on the internet and say, I am against pink nail polish and become someone who is known for that, right? I can speak at places and talk about my hate for pink nail polish. But that does not make me someone who's connected to community or someone who's actually organizing to bring about change, right? People might be inspired never to wear pink nail polish again, but that doesn't mean that I'm actually tearing down the structures that brought pink nail polish into being. Organizing is looking at the structure that creates pink nail polish and saying, what can I do to ensure that my community is protected from this bad thing, right? So of course, pink nail polish is a, that's a silly example, but I just wanted to highlight the differences because we see the word organizer and the word activist kind of interchanged, you know, kind of thrown around, and these are not the same Thing. One is rooted in community and one is more rooted in being seen as a figure that that um, proposes or is a proponent of a certain way of doing things, a certain way of life. So not the same thing. And I will say that, you know, we're not activists. <laughs> we're not activists here. Um, but we do a lot of, we do some advocacy work and we do a lot of education, but we are not activists. Yeah, I think that I think we've definitely um, spoken against that. I know you've definitely said that the the worst thing that anyone could ever say about you is that you're an anti-racist uh, scholar or activist. <laughs> Please, and I really don't think that Please. that means I've done everything all wrong in life. What we're doing, right? And. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've said that. Um, so I think that, you know, we haven't really talked about our our future plans uh, with the podcast, with how we're going to expand mm-hmm. um, our project, not the podcast necessarily, but just to let everyone who listens know we're in the process of forming a nonprofit. As I said earlier, the irony about us talking about how shitty nonprofits are <laughs> about the nonprofit mm-hmm. industrial complex. And we're in the process of forming one. Um, but what it is is something that will build on and expand the mission of the podcast. So not the podcast itself, but the mission, the reason that we started it, which was disrupting the hierarchies of knowledge and uplifting black women and girls. And I think reading through some of these essays, we didn't talk about all of them, but we did read more than just uh, the Gilmore essay. It has been eye-opening for us in terms of our approach. I think originally one of the things that we did want to do was target uh, foundation funding, but as we've seen, our our 
the podcast community grow and people being really interested and invested in what it is that we're doing, we're kind of like, oh, maybe we don't, we don't need to like necessarily target or rely on that as funding. We can continue doing the kind of work that we're doing because, because community, our community supports, supports it. So that's, that's where we're at. That's where we're at with, with things. Um, and as, of course, when things actually come into fruition, all of you will know there'll be a big announcement, all of that. Um, one of the things that we're also thinking about is just, is that strategy, right? Like what exactly can we do in the realm of education, in the realm of um, <laughs> advocacy? I feel like we have um we have so much to say and so much that so much to give that it would be a shame for us to kind of just leave the podcast where it is at our end date um and not continue to do this work in some way. And so we are not saying that a nonprofit um is going to solve any problems whatsoever, right? Like a nonprofit is not going to be the liberation thing, the vehicle, right? But mm-hmm. it it could be a tool that provides some form of direct service. And so that's how we're thinking about it in this moment. Yes, which of course, like us, we're always learning and that can mm-hmm. grow and change. And I think one of the one of the things that I think at least has set us apart as a podcast is that we don't really seek corporate funding or corporate sponsorships. Generally, that's mm-hmm. what podcasts do. If you listen to a podcast, they have probably three ad reads where they're giving you, you know, their their sponsorship codes or whatever it is that, you know, that you can get their discount codes and all of those kinds of things and they get they get funding, they get paid uh, to read these ads to their listenership. We don't we don't do that, right? And mm-hmm. I think that as you get bigger, there's more and more pressure to start doing that in and that like that's in the corporate in, in the corporatization of whatever it is that you're doing. And I think that there's a similar situation that you have with nonprofits, right? So as they start getting mm-hmm. bigger, they start having more donations, you have to start really questioning how can they continue to serve community when they have to be accountable. And I mean that in, in like the sense of accounting because they're getting money from these major companies and institutions mm-hmm. that exist to serve capital and are donating that money for, for one part, a capitalist reason, which is, to, which is as a tax write-off. But on the other hand, a lot of the times it's to, you know, it's for PR, it's to look a certain way, to show that they're supporting certain things. Mm-hmm. So, of course in that vein, we have to talk about the recent controversy surrounding Black Lives Matter Global Network, BLM GN. So for those of you who don't know, New York Magazine reported last week that Black Lives Matter Global Network purchased a $6 million house that kind of appears <laughs> to exceed the limits of nonprofits and blur boundaries between personal gain and the mission of the nonprofit. And so this isn't the first time that BLM finances, particularly 
for the purchase of real estate has come under fire. Last summer in July, uh, Black Lives Matter Toronto was facing similar criticisms about having received money from BLM Global Network to purchase real estate in Toronto that was supposed to be used as a community centre, as a Black community centre. So overall, I think it begins to raise this question about whether these organizations are about liberation or whether they're just liberal. So what do you think about these critiques of activists making money? Because I think there's also this idea that if you're an activist or an organizer, you should be living, you know, on the poverty line or you should be living in the same situation as the people that you're organizing for. Yeah, I think there's that, there is that sentiment that people think that, oh, if you do social service or social good, unless you're a doctor, (laughs) right, then you deserve to be paid uh, next to nothing because the goodness of the work that you do should feed you, right? It should put food Mm -hmm. on your table. It should make you feel good. And we all know that that's not, that's that's not how life works, right? Just because I'm kind don't mean that I'm going to have food to eat. Um, and it really helps prop up, like, the gross pay inequities that we see. Like, there are people who literally structure the stock. I mean, I don't know, I don't know about stock market, but they structure the stock market and they get paid <laughs> all this money. Um, and it's like, but how is what you're doing actually benefiting the the lives of the descendants of people who built Wall Street, right? Um, and most mm. of the time, it's harming, it's harming them. So in the case with like, like at first when I with like BLM, we don't know where the money's going. You know, I knew someone who was in philanthropy who was like, you know, well they can't disclose everything because that's how you get infiltrated, right? That's how your mm. movement gets thwarted. And now as more purchases come out and it's like, okay, $6 million house. Okay. People in the family being paid to quote clean the house, but are they cleaning the house? (laughs) People, you know, a lot of what they call it, nepotism, I think. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Are like a lot of that happening, a lot of money kind of being funneled through that. And yeah, now it's starting to look like what uh, Sabrina Fulton and other mothers were saying, which is like, you all are literally living off of our dead children, mm-hmm. right? And so it it's really a gross misappropriation of power. And I am all for one for people to live the life that fulfills them. But a lot of times our values, if we are not, we don't check ourselves. Our values are really, really, really entrenched in capitalism and really entrenched in having the kind of life that actually looks just like our oppressors. And mm-hmm. if we're not careful, you know, just because I'm a black woman doesn't inherently make the shit that I do revolutionary. I don't know who told y'all that, but that's not the truth. It's not the truth. It's not the truth, <laughs> right? I could, I could... <laughs> let me not say that but I could like I could be a bad person I could oppress other people or be in positions of power where I'm allowed like I'm able to oppress other people right and so I 
I think we, as we move forward and we start thinking about these likely, quote, likely allies and unlikely allies and how we improve our movements, we really have to be thoughtful about what values we have. Because if it were me, they got $90 million. I think about winning the lottery all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, if I had the lo- won the lottery, yeah, I would buy my house. But then the rest of that money, it's whoever needs it. It's going to Didi's getting a text. <laughs> um, all, all of my close friends are getting a text message. And it's going to be real quick. Quit your job. And that's when you know what that means. That's, like, that is what I said. <laughs> I was like... If I won the lottery, I'm retiring all my friends and we're going to go live our best lives. Like if I want to live our lives, I'm, it's going to start in the community. I, I mean, like, what's the point of having all of this? Say you won 90 million dollars, right? What's the point of having all of that money if you're alone? Right. Or it's just like it's you and your mama and your sister and the six million dollars. I mean, well, I'm going to speak for myself. And just say that is not my dream life um, for a variety of reasons. But like my one of my dreams is to win the lottery and buy homes in Baltimore and fix them and give them to people. Yeah. Like not rent them yes. out, not sell them, but actually literally give mm-hmm. them away to people who need homes. And that's not the most profitable thing, but I feel like that. If I have all that money, like, I'm not going to spend it. Yeah. And, you know, the earth about to blow up anyway, right? So <laughs> oh, maybe that's crass. But, like, you know, no, for why, real. why hoard the wealth for future generations when we can improve the world? We can do other things to improve that the world. That we live in, right? I've, I've said the same thing. Like, I've said the same thing about Harlem. Because, you know, it's just a, a, a hotbed of gentrification, Mm-hmm. And I've I've said the same thing. I would want to buy homes and and give them to people to who are in need, right? Like, wow, you get a house and you, you get, get a house. house. See, that's <laughs> yo support support us, and we're giving away See? houses. That's it. <laughs> just send just send us that's 90 where your money's mil, going. You know? Send us ninety mil. Hey, okay, <laughs> please. Um. I mean, I, I was also defending them at first because I hadn't read the New York Magazine article, but I remember when, mm-hmm. all, this, when all this stuff came out about Patrice Colors and um, the homes that she bought or the house that she bought. And we, we had talked about it and it was like, there's such this idea that if you're an activist or if you're an organizer, you shouldn't be making a ton of money, but why shouldn't she be comfortable if she's getting that money based on media deals and other kinds of labor that she's doing? However, she parlayed this... Um, you know, the, the BLM project into her own kind of work, like mm-hmm. good for her, but whew, I read the, then I read the article and I was like, okay, hang on, hang on a minute. You know, this, this is messed up. I was like, oh shit, LOL. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Damn. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on, but then I just thought, you know, am I even surprised? Right? Like when you get to be a certain when you get to be a certain size, it's like, how are you still, are you even still in touch with community? Mm-hmm. And then the second thing I started mm-hmm. thinking about is their, is their mission because we are going through this process now where we have to define what our mission is and actually write out how it is that we're going to accomplish it. And so I started thinking, how do you make black lives matter? 
Right. You know? Right? Like, we were talking about this in our discussion section. Because of what we've had to discuss, I don't understand what their mission is. So if you have, like, prison industrial complex abolition, that has a very clear goal. Whereas Black Lives Mattering, in, like, a very practical, material sense, that that doesn't that doesn't necessarily have a clear goal. And in some ways, it's, uh, you know, it kind of, um, what is it like? Not, it's not a paradox, but it kind of like counters itself, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think someone made the point that this is the problem with like the movement and the foundation sharing a name, right? Like the foundation itself is not really in touch with what's happening on the ground. And the movement for black lives which if y'all have been paying attention, people will talk about the movement for, for Black Lives rather than Black Lives Matter because of this conflation. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I just, you know, what's, where's the money going? What's the money doing? And of course, like you have to save for the long term. You have to think long term and not, and not just like throw money out there if you're thinking about the longevity of the organization rather than actually achieving a goal. Um, mm-hmm. but like in the, at the end of the day, what is the money for when you have people whose, whose children, whose family members are dying and they have to fundraise for funerals? Right. And you're, <laughs> what I saw someone say, they were watching a YouTube video of, um, her trying to learn pole dancing. Oh, jeez. And they think that the video was shot in the house. Goodness. Look, as a former mm. person, enjoy pole dancing. You know, get it how you live and grow, but <laughs> not in the name of um, activism. I mean, yeah, not in the name of but that, activism. But that's like, and yet, that's that's the problem with these activist influencers, though. You know, mm-hmm. is like they are. I think we should be wary of people whose livelihoods are dependent on being popular Mm -hmm. which is what we have with black lives matter because they've gotten so big they have to continue being big and being seen um and then they kind of it's like you kind of lose sight of what it is that you started out the whole project for and because of that you have to continue appeasing different groups of Mm -hmm. people so you're never going to get radicalism from people who are dependent on popularity. You're never going to get radicalism from AOC or Sean King or whatever. Like the media might right. might spin that progressiveness as radicalism, but it's not. It's not radical. Like I remember what I I don't remember if we said it on the podcast or if I just asked you, but it was like what is radical and you were like it's just it's outside of the bounds of our of our political framework. So mm-hmm. if AOC is a representative. She's not a radical. <laughs> she believes in the system. So. Yeah. Just... And actually does work to like prop up the system, which I think is also yeah. something that's that's important to, because we were talking about in the discussion section, on a theoretical level, right? The phrase Black Lives Matter or the sentence or, you know, whatever. Black Lives Matter actually undermines itself right because if your life matters you wouldn't need to affirm it and then the question is who am i affirming it to right and a mm-hmm. lot of i remember well, i remember in 2012 um 
Trayvon Martin and kind of the first wave of Black Lives Matter. <laughs> I remember living in South Carolina and hearing um, when George Zimmerman was acquitted, hearing people shoot fireworks in my neighborhood. Um, and so I remember, and then going to college and Michael Brown was killed um, my senior year of college. And then that kind of being the, the huge uptick for Black Lives Matter um, and being involved in organizing and protests and things like that around racial justice. And even at the age of 21, struggling with the white students on campus calling us monkeys, calling us, you know, niggers, et cetera, as we're marching and we're crying because, you know, Duke police is asking niggas for their IDs at the bus stop while we waiting on the bus to go to the other side of campus. And, and knowing that that is just like a small level form of anti-blackness, right? Like it's a fault and stuff. It's violent, what they, people would call quote microaggressions, but it's still part of a system in which we're constantly reminded as black students that we don't belong on a campus that black people built. So it was, it's, when you talk about people moving away from it, it makes me think um, about how all these movements, like the Black Panther movement, the Black Power movement, civil rights movement, all these movements were infiltrated by individuals, right, who saw profit or connection to the federal government as something that would ensure longevity of their name, longevity of whatever, mm. pay, whatever, or even just the promise of life, right? Which was eventually taken from them anyway, right? And so I wonder, now I wonder, right, What what is the promise, right, to exploiting <laughs> really exploiting people like what's the what is the promise now mm. like what what is the hope is the promise a six million dollar house is it worth it is a six million dollar house worth it is the you know is having a vacation home worth it is having an uh, <laughs> influencer home worth it is having the black joy campaigns or videos of black people enjoying themselves that still bring certain companies profit that still people still profit mm-hmm. from it's still exploitation like is it worth it uh i think about all these things all the time mm-hmm. um but definitely the activist influencers it gets to a point where if yeah like nonprofits, right if you solve the problem they don't have anything to get on tiktok or instagram or twitter to talk about yep so then their their identity is is staked in that and they can't move from there. And so it's what you said is really important, right? It's it's important to have connection to community outside of the work that you're doing so that way it doesn't become who you are and you're not invested in, in the problems continuing, mm. uh, right? And so, yeah, you're not invested in getting a profit because it's like, oh, how am I going to eat? It's like, oh, actually, there's this job I do, this occupation that I do to make sure that I eat, but I'm working towards making sure that like nobody has to work or what, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but we have definitely had our run in with activist influencers. Mm-hmm. We are not activist influencers. Nope. <laughs> we have seen, <laughs> we have actually, um, <laughs> 
in one of the worst rebrands in history, honey. <laughs> we have seen Nicole Hannah-Jones, really. At some point, I feel like if you have, if you have the means and the funds to do so, delete Twitter off your phone, hire someone for else to tweet for you. And then have them don't even do that. Tweet. You don't even need to be there. <laughs> you don't need to be there, but I'm if you need to like promote something, you know, just have somebody get on and promote. Oh, I got a new book coming out. I'm so excited. Like, <laughs> yo, we're like, girl, sis. But then again, she she in her t- Twitter bio, she did call herself a mulatress. So there are certain things I think. I people are coming to the real life. <laughs> I just people think are that... like, oh. <laughs> I just think why <laughs> you have all of this influence, if you want to call it that. You have all of these people who see your tweets, who are interested mm-hmm. in what you have to say. And you also have people who are going to spin what it is that you have to say. So why why pick on why pick on people? Why pick on black women? Why be transphobic? Why be why? you know, just why? Just don't do it. Why? I think that you know, I don't even want to blame. You know what? I retract. I retract that. The problem is not, I mean, they are the problem, but I think that we as con- consumers, quote unquote, of this kind of mm. content need to divest from from the activist influencer and just understand that we're not going to, we don't need to be learning from somebody who's going to make a 30 second TikTok and somebody who's going to write a 280 character tweet. Like, Read the books, read the texts, listen to talks that are given, join different, like join your community organizations. If if there isn't one, start one and start reading the texts together, right? Like I think that a lot of, a lot of abolitionist texts, a lot of like the more radical, uh, radical texts, I think they should be read in community. I think they should be read with mm-hmm. others. Um, and do that like we just need to i think we need to divest from this whole thing like we're gonna learn from uh what's that account called now they changed their name from so you want to talk about i think it's to i think it's so informed or whatever like don't rely on those on those kinds of people to to learn about social justice i absolutely I i think that's key like nobody no one is perfect i think that's important to say even if somebody even us we're not Mm -hmm. perfect you know we're as we always say we're still learning and you may be learning from us but we also want to learn from you we want to hear what other folks have to say and we want to all learn together so we never say that we're we're teaching per se um and i think that that's kind of the, the attitude that we need to that everyone needs to take towards people who are these quote unquote influencers. Like the point is not to be popular. The point is to liberate ourselves. And so if someone is popular, I've got, I've got questions about whether or not you're really doing the work. Exactly. Um, Or you're doing some work, but it might not be the work that you think you're doing or the work that other people think you're doing. I no, I, I I agree with everything that you said, and um, it actually reminds me of what 
um, Ruth Gilmore said, and it was like, you know, if incarcerated people can get together in the constraints that they um, have, then what is what are the excuses for those of us who are not incarcerated, right? Um, mm. And I do think that, I don't know, this might sound kind of conspiracy theory, whatever, <laughs> but I do think that part of the long-term goal of these groups that have been organizing for a long time, and I'll, so I'll also pause here and say, y'all, if y'all think that Republicans, the right, the evangelical right, do not have it together and they are not funding their own people and they're not doing the learning, you will be sorely mistaken, honey. That is how, that is why their movements have been as successful as they've been. Um, and so we, I think those of us who don't ascribe to those kind of logics, right, who see, who might see violence as something that is not a useful tool for our goals, etc., kind of believe in an inherent benevolence that does that does kind of read to me as like naivete mm. and also like laziness in a sense, right? Like, oh, I don't necessarily have to do this thing or be vigilant about my way of life because, oh, you're not actually really going to try to kill trans people or you're not actually really going to try to disable a large portion of the population through improper public health tech like no one's actually going to do that and then there's all this shock when it actually happens Uh and it's like oh but wait but but aren't we all you know whatever land of the free home of the brave whatever and so i do think that like part of that organizing right has been passing these laws that weaken public education systems so that we are actually creating generations of people who rely on other people to give them information because they have mm. not developed the capacity and skills to interpret it for themselves. Mm-hmm. I, like You see on Twitter all the time, people are like, oh no, reading comprehension is gone. Yep. And it's a joke, but it's actually not a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, from my time as a teacher, just really sitting with students who were really struggling to do what I saw as basic things and seeing, oh yes, this is really and truly how you create an underclass of people who cannot free themselves. Mm -hmm. You make them dependent on you for all these things. And so not to knock the people who are like, oh, I'm trying to make information accessible through my TikToks or through my Instagram page, um, through through a podcast, right? Mm -hmm. It's like not to knock it, but to say, that we have to start thinking proactively within our own communities about how we're going to educate ourselves and prepare ourselves because it's not like the people who are who are doing oppression have kindness. Mm. And I mean that right. seriously. It's like it's mm-hmm. not like they're going to oppress you with kindness or they're going to see that you're the exceptional Negro. So maybe you're going to not experience all of this violence, right? Um, that's not the, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, like, I, again, I absolutely agree with you. There, there is a kind of intellectual laziness. There's a, just an, and even an unwillingness to see truly how much hard work has gone into, that goes into organizing and movements because we're fed, the information that we're fed about the civil rights movement was that there were two 
maybe three extraordinary men who had all these great ideas and they stood up on podiums and led the people to freedom, Mm -hmm. right? And we don't see all the women who worked behind the scenes, all the children Mm -hmm. that were sacrificed so that segregation or desegregation could, quote, happen, Mm -hmm. right? We don't see all the hours of labor, right? All the reading and all the education work that people were doing to actually do the movement, right? Mm -hmm. We just see the movies that glamorize, that glamorize it. So I think there's so much work to be done. And so it's, it's really frustrating when you see these kind of problematic tweets from people like Nicole Hannah Jones or Kimberly Crenshaw, where they're kind of affirming dominant power structures, right? They're kind of affirming um, things that we're fighting against. And it just make it hard to um, have heroes, but I always say don't let mm-hmm. the hero thing go. There are no heroes yeah. in liberation. Um, everyone, but yeah. everyone is fallible. No one is perfect. No one is the perfect spokesperson, activist, mm-hmm. liberator, all of those mm-hmm. things, right? Um, yeah, I think so many things that I, I want to address in what you said. Um, one of them being, if we think about the Black Panther, the Black Panther Party, one of the mm-hmm. most significant projects that they had was was the breakfast program and feeding mm-hmm. the community, um, and feeding communities through those through those programs, food for all programs and all of that because they knew hungry people can't organize, and so food has always been a way of controlling the underclass of controlling black people, particularly mm-hmm. in the United States. And who was at the head of those breakfast programs? It was typically women. But what we hear about, mm-hmm. of course, are are the rallies and, and the gunfights and this and that one, really the thing that, that radicalized most, uh, most people in those times was the breakfast program and the education programs. Mm-hmm. So there's that, and, and giving them something they needed, and giving them so something they wouldn't have to, right? So your parents wouldn't have to work so hard, cause I'm, like we only working cause we gotta eat and gotta keep a roof over our heads, and well that's yeah. the only reason why I'm working. Some people <laughs> like to work, which I don't. If you like to work, if you are a Virgo, Virgo placement, and you like to work, <laughs> more power to you, honey. I I am not. I do not Productivity like to work. It's fun, no. <laughs> um, but I think. And then the second thing I was going to say is is that this is that's why um, we don't think of the podcast as the be all end all, right? Like we don't think mm-hmm. of what we do as 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 everything that you need. We think of this as a starting point, and at some point we're going to have an end to it as well. And the the nonprofit, the project that we have in mind there is is to build on that and to open that up. And to start providing more, more tools in different kinds of ways for people to mm-hmm. spark the change that that it is that we need to see. So, yeah. we're not here to like this, even though we're talking about all of this. And you're like, hey, but you guys are popular. This podcast is popular. I mean, we're not that popular. <laughs> <laughs> we ain't that popular, popular, but like I know people do listen. <laughs> what it is that we have to say, but we always think of this as a starting point, which is why we give you all resources to continue digging deeper. This is just like a place where we open doors. We're not here saying this is the entire house. Mm -hmm. I 
watch a lot of cult stuff. And you <laughs> just got to be aware. You got to be aware of the leaders who say, I know all, mm. follow me. Because mm-hmm. um, usually they lead you to your own death and destruction, right? And so for me, especially in the, the work that I do, like the healing and um, emp- empowerment work, whatever you want to call it with survivors, I'm never counseling work like I'm not the oh I want you to be dependent on me for your healing it's always I want you to recognize the power that you have within yourself Mm. right and so much of movement work has really gotten away from that it's gotten our focus is on changing the government right this place that actually we've we've given our power away too right when you Mm -hmm. when you're a citizen you give your power to the government but that's old political theory whatever a lot of the work especially for revolution for liberation is really people coming back to themselves and saying, yes, this is the way things are, but that doesn't mean that they always have to be this way. But the only way that it will change is if I recognize like my role and my power in it. Um, and it really is, it's a really fearful process to recognize how much power you really have. And I think um, maybe one day we'll have a, a off podcast conversation about that right like Mm. it's actually scary to say oh wait I can take responsibility for myself and for my community I can be I can hold myself accountable I can hold other people accountable I can build these relationships without them being like fractured through well not fractured but refracted through like all these different prisms of capitalism and sexism and this that and a third I can determine for myself who I am and what I want to be. And we can do that in community. Wow. That's kind of scary. Mm. (laughs) It's kind of scary actually. Um, But that's, that's part of the work. And so if, you know, I always have to dig it in. We're talking about nonprofits. There's one nonprofit that I want to encourage everyone to stay away from. And it is teach for America. (laughs) I, was hoodwinked by Teach for America in college and thought that it was a place for me to grow as an organizer, as someone who was interested in um, justice and liberation and and quickly found out that Teach for America operates a lot like other kind of social justice nonprofit ventures in which they actually perpetuate the problem that they're trying to solve in order Mm. to increase their their size and their power and their influence. Um, And so I strongly discourage people, especially black people, um, from doing Teach for America just because they will use you much more than you think you'll be able to use them. Mm. Um, And if if y'all want to learn more about my personal experiences with Teach for America, it'll come out in my memoir. And I'm just (laughs) kidding. Um, (laughs) No, you're not. I hope you're not because I'm trying to read all of it. (laughs) I'm trying to read every chapter from high school to uh, graduate school for show. Oh, wow. Honey, so much to say. No, I'm trying to read that Um. chapter. (laughs) Um, But we'll have to have a conversation about it another time. Um, But yeah, we... We here at ZD, we do lots of thinking about liberation, about freedom, and we know that that's something that we can only do with special attention to ourselves and to our communities. Um, outside of that, honey, we not 
we're not changing nothing. We're just keeping the same old wheels turning, just with different names on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. And that's not what we're trying to do. That's not what we're trying to do. As always, Brendan, Brendan with the mic drop. <laughs> Take us out. Take us out, Brendan. Take us out. Yo. Okay. Well, yo, that's all we got for y'all today. Um, (laughs) Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa D.D. James and (laughs) Brendan Dendon Times and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council and donations from listeners just like you. Yes. Thank you all for your support. If you like this episode, please share it via social media, WhatsApp, or e-card. <laughs> e-card? <laughs> we would love to hear what you have to say about this episode, so be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. For transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or become a patron, visit our website, zorasdaughters.com. And if you're like, wow, I could not write all of that down fast enough, everything is always, always, always in the show notes, so just check it out there. And last but not least, please, 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 remember that we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye.